0: As we're doing this, let's remember those that aren't with us. The hills um, are still traveling. Um, And also let's remember, and keep in our prayers, the kings as they're on vacation this week, um, that our pastor would be refreshed, um, that they would have a great time and come back to us safely. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, I'm going to read through verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that has been made so they are without excuse for although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for things resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you, Lord Asking you to do that which only you can do, Lord, and that is to reveal who we are to us as you reveal to us who you are as well through your word. Father, be merciful on us, and yet at the same time, Lord, I pray that you you do not release us from your grip, so that we might be able to see you better and worship you for who you are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So ber- verses 16 and 17 are the thesis statement for the book of Romans. The end of it proclaims that the power of God is contained in his gospel, and that this power is nothing less than his righteousness. The first 18 verses of Paul's introduction and greeting, greeting to the believers in Rome, he wanted them to know that their faith was well known, and that because of it, he was anxious to come to them and meet them. And finally, he wanted them to know that he wanted to bring a blessing to them. He wanted to build them up in their faith through the preaching of the gospel. But since he'd been prevented from coming to them at this point, he wrote this letter. And thank God that he had prevented Paul from going to Rome. Because of of that, we have this letter. In our verses today, Paul begins to preach the gospel to the believers in Rome. The very gospel that he would preach to them when he got to Rome. The very gospel that he said would build them up in their faith and his as well. The very gospel that is the only means of salvation for all men. If you guys are, I'm not sure how many of you uh, mark in your Bible or not. Um, I'm a Bible marker. Um, But if you are, grab your pens and look in your um, verses today and look for the word for and therefore at the beginning of sentences. If you're not, just take note of them. The word for and therefore, well, any point that you, you actually see the word therefore in your Bible, you should ask yourself, what's it there for? It's always therefore. It points, um, it links what is coming next to what happened before. And it's a, usually it's an evidence um, that's bolstering what the statement was before. Paul uses the word for in the same way in these verses. Now I want to warn you that the next chapters of Romans is not a walk in the park. More <clears throat> it's a beatdown for all of us men because it deals with our sin and Paul doesn't begin nicely. He goes straight for a throat punch. These verses are constructed in such a way that we're to see them as going from bad to worse, from going from ugly to even uglier. There's at least four reasons why Paul spends so much time hammering us in the kidneys over our sin. The first is that we need to understand the seriousness of sin. The second, bad diagnosis always lead to false remedies. Number three, understanding our sin and God's wrath is healthy. And number four, knowing our sin will help us cherish the gospel. I said that the fours and therefores in the Bible are there as linking words, but at the same time, we need to understand that they also point out the intentionality of the actions that are being taken based on the actions described in the previous verses. So the first four that we come to is in our text in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So the four, the four at the beginning of verse 18 links verses 17 with it. That the righteousness of God is revealed in his gospel through faith. Paul is beginning to explain the gospel, beginning to preach the gospel. And when we preach the gospel, we always must begin with God, not man. God is preeminent over everything. Not only is it his gospel, but it's his righteousness that's been offended. And it's his wrath that needs to be appeased. When the gospel is preached these days, man is the center of it. Jesus came to earth um, for man. He came to an man. He basically came because he loves man. That's what they're taught. Now, don't get me wrong. Man does have a part to play in the gospel. It's called sin. That's our only part that we play. So Paul begins by elevating God and his righteousness as separate from all men. We need to understand who God is in order to understand who we are. And he tells us that man is completely separate from God by using the words unrighteousness and ungodliness. Whatever God is, man is un of that. Righteousness at his base means just and morally right. When describing God, righteousness is linked with his justice, with his love, with his mercy. And it's through his righteousness that any sinner, that any of us could ever be made righteous. God is just. Man is unjust. God is morally right. We are immoral. John Calvin had this to say. Therefore, original sin is seen to be hereditary, Depravity and corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of the soul. Wherefore, those who have been defined, or wherefore, those who have defined original sin as the lack of original righteousness with which we should have been endowed, no doubt include, by implication, the whole fact of the matter, but they have not fully expressed the positive energy of sin. For our nature is not merely bereft of good, but is so productive of every kind of evil. That it can't be inactive. Paul or uh, John Calvin goes on. and, he, and I'm going to continue his quote here. He uses a word that I had never actually heard of before. It's not an easy word to say. It is conqueciness. It's weird. It's a weird long, but it, a weird word. But it actually has a very direct meaning. Its meaning is a strong desire. It is best explained in Lust, just, you know, the wanton lust of man. And he says, those who have called it concupience have used a word by no means wide of the mark. If it were added, and this is what many do not concede, that whatever is in man, from intellect to will, from the soul to the flesh, is all defiled and crammed with concupiousness. Or, to sum it up briefly, that the whole man is himself nothing but it. Some have railed against God because he is described with words such as wrath. They say that they could never worship or serve a God who is full of wrath. That is a small and petty God, they think. We humans use words to describe our emotions or feelings to convey meaning to God. We say that he is love, and because of our emotions and our experiences concerning love, we know something about what God is like. What not God is, but what he is like. We say that he's merciful. Again, because we have felt mercy, or we have actually seen merciful acts, we know something of what God is like. Wrath is one of those words that have gotten a bad rap in our generation, along with words such as truth, discipline, and even tolerance. We equate wrath with out of control anger. This is not what is meant by wrath. Wrath is more like the cold calculated steps taken by a surgeon as he cuts open a person and attacks with surgical precision the cancerous growth that he has made his life work to eradicate. When attributed to God, wrath explains his, his essential holiness his hatred towards sin. Listen how God describes Himself. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. The Yahweh passed before him. This is uh, before Moses and explain. Yahweh Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is merciful, he is gracious, slow to anger, steadfast in his love, faithfulness and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, while at the same time he by no means clears the guilty, but will punish iniquity. His wrath is nothing more than the reflection of his love. It's the opposite side of the same coin, and it's just as full, just as deep, and just as powerful as his love is. And the wrath which is revealed from heaven against all men is not all his wrath. It's only the temporal effects of his wrath the more serious and deeper effects of of his wrath actually happened in the spiritual realm, that which we cannot see or understand at this moment. But the greatest and most tangible evidence of God's wrath being revealed from heaven on us now is that everything within his creation dies. No matter how beautiful the place is that you live, no matter how wonderful things are going, We are surrounded by death. Everything dies, and there's nothing we can do about it. The Lord knows that humans try. We will try and do anything, I mean anything, to extend our life for just a couple more years. But in the end, we can't escape his wrath. The percentage is absolute. Everybody dies. So what does it mean that they suppress the truth? So to understand, we need to look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. We can begin that verse with another four, which is given to us as proof of the previous statement through this one. And by it, we're supposed to understand that God has done all that is needed to be done to reveal himself to man. So what is meant by suppress the truth is that man takes the truth of God, the natural truth revealed to us through his creation, and buries it under a, a mountain of human made up explanations. Man will believe anything, and I mean anything, except that God created the universe with a single spoken sentence, which ironically is exactly what universe means, single spoken sentence. So Paul doubles down on the suppression of truth in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All men in the first century were linked much closer to an agrarian society than we are. They were more dependent on on a natural order of life, more dependent on rains coming when they're supposed to, sun coming when it's supposed to. We, in our society, have blocked ourselves away from that. We live in air-conditioned houses, we have air-conditioned cars, and we have air-conditioned businesses. We no longer are linked to what happens if there's a drought. Well, we're going to get our food from someplace else. We've isolated ourselves from God's nature. They weren't so isolated most people in our generation, for if we want to actually see a sunrise, at least an unobstructed sunrise, we have to actually take great pains to do that. We have to go someplace to do that. It wasn't that way for them. And there's so much, I mean, it's just we've isolated ourselves so much from that that we actually now spend thousands and thousands of dollars so that we can go camping and get back to nature so that we can sit by a fire outside and look up in the heavens and see God's wonder and the stars that he's created. It wasn't that way for the first century um, believers. All these things are just mere parts of how God has revealed himself to man through his creation. Matter of fact, we... Take one of of the easiest and best ways that we can actually understand that God created everything, and we never even think about it. It happens every day in our lives. And most of us, well, there's quite a few people who never actually see it. It's the sun rising. It happens like clockwork every single day. And it's perfect when it happens and how it happens. We take it for granted. We should know by these simple things that there is a God, and he created everything that he alone is worthy of praise. So this brings us to verse 21. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and with their foolish hearts were darkened. Once again, Paul begins with four, linking this thought as proof of his previous ones. We are without excuse. In this verse, however, he says something can be easily confused, where he says that they knew God. Well, if they knew him, then why didn't they worship him? Well, knew is one of those words in the Bible that has different meanings. Because we know in John 2, 24, we're told that Jesus didn't trust himself to those people because he knew everything in them. And in the same way, Matthew 7, 23, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Same word. Two different meanings. The first meaning is that he he knows everyone intimately. Everything about us. Second meaning, those people that he didn't know, he didn't know in a saving way. So you can know God. But you don't, these people may have known God, but they didn't know him as Lord. They didn't know him as their father. They just knew him as something that they created in their own mind. Which is meant by the word foolish in the sentence, describing their hearts. Their understanding concerning God was off base. They thought wrongly about him, and where they were unable to comprehend who he is because of that. Instead of honor and praise, they, like Satan, thought that they could question God, to speculate about him. In doing so, they came up with new truths, and these new truths are no truth at all which led to the darkening of their hearts as they moved farther and farther away from the light and life of man. A couple of other things here as well, though. We're told it became futile in their thinking. This is one byproduct of not seeing God as Lord and Savior. If you're off in that, you're going to be off in everything. It affects everything all the way down to the very way you think. This explains Bigfoot. Also, um, those who don't have a right understanding concerning God will be off in everything. That's why logic is out the window these days. Why so many are willing to say that up is down and man is woman. they become futile in their thinking. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Jews in Jerusalem at the Passover in John chapter 2 worshiped an image in the form of a man instead of the God who was walking amongst them. We need to catch that. They saw Jesus, but they were worshiping an image, not the Christ. That same Jesus is still being worshiped out there, and he's still got the same name. But he's not the Messiah Jesus, the only one who has the power to save. Man and our feudal minds decide and de- decided who and what God is like. We decide what power he has, what eminence he gets, what glory he has based on how we feel. In short, we worship images and not the true and living God. The only here for us, for us to be able to see God as righteous and holy, and ourselves as unrighteous and unholy, we have to understand that we are sinners. So this brings us to the one and only therefore in our verses. And I said earlier that when you see therefore, you should stop and ask yourself, what's it therefore? This, therefore, is here as a separator as well as a linking statement. If this was a roller coaster, If our verses today were a roller coaster, then everything up to this point was um, us getting into the car, standing in line first, getting into the car, pulling down the the bar over our head, and then that slow climb up to that top of that hill. And then we come to therefore. When you get to the top of that hill, you guys ever been on a roller coaster? You get to the top of that hill, and they usually like to hang you up there You're up there, and you can see everything around you. You can see exactly what has transpired, what got you to this point, and what is coming next. Therefore. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust to their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul reaches all the way back to verse 18 and grabs hold of all the indictments against man, the suppression of truth, the worshiping of false gods, the claims of being wise as, as the reason why God has revealed his wrath against man. But now Paul describe, begins to describe how God reveals his wrath. And let's be clear, his wrath is not only just, but it's fair, it's equitable. Not only does a crime deserve the punishment, but it deserves precisely the punishment that it gets. God hands them over or gives them up to the, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the lust of the heart is the refusal to recognize him as God and then to try to dethrone him through the worshiping of idols. And the physical results, when God hands them over, is impurity. The roller coaster of sin is heading downhill. It always gets progressively worse. Sin is a cancer that consumes completely. What impurity is Paul talking about here? It's sexual impurity. Sexual impurity is always the byproduct of idol worship. God created men for women and women for men, specifically, and only to be united in the covenant of marriage. Man, in the futility of our minds, have thrown off what we hold as the shackles of marriage and have determined to explore our sexuality for ourselves outside the confines of marriage. And I want to be really, really clear about this because the Bible is really, really clear about this. Any form of sex outside of marriage is sin, boy with girl or otherwise. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Here again, Paul uses the for to link the previous thought with uh, the proof or evidence in this sentence. Because of our unrighteousness, God has handed us over to impurity, which is now seen more clearly as dishonorable passions. Now, any passion outside and above God can be dishonorable. Even a good passion, like deciding that you want um, to serve other people, if it's done to the detriment of your family or outside of the confines of God, it's dishonorable. But that's not the passion that Paul's talking about here. This is the second time that Paul says that God handed them over or gave them up. This time, the thing that he gives them up to is far more sinister, and it begins to get real ugly. As we're allowed to see just how sinful we can become and are. Verse 27, "...and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another." Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Despite what our modern enlightened culture tells us, there are are only two sexes. I want to say that again. There are only two sexes, not multiplied millions. There are only two, male and female. And they were made and created one for another this is the evidence that paul is using in the demonstration of the truth of god on humans you study nature and you'll see that every um, every species procreates through the coming together of male and female it's god's design that's how species species continue we're told that this kind of thinking is old-fashioned outdated however the fact that paul can describe the unnatural as just that, unnatural, tells us that anything outside of that is God giving us over to it. No matter how culturally inclusive we're told that we must be, if we are to be true to our king, we must be honest and loyal to him. He says that these acts as described above are sin and so must we as well. We should not call homosexuality Gay marriage. We should not call those that do that a gay couple. That is taking a word that actually means joyful and happy and using it for sin the sin of homosexuality. And marriage is a God given covenant. And through his covenant, he said it is only between one man and one woman. Those are the only two people that can be married. That's it. They can have a homosexual union. I'm not going to disagree with that. The state has a right to do that. But they cannot be married. That's God's. So, the sin of homosexuality and homosexual desires is just and due penalty for our error. But what error is Paul talking about? Being wrong about the two sexes? Being wrong about the use of sex outside the confines of marriage? Nope. The error these speaking of is the foolishness of worshiping idols, of rejecting the truth of the evidence of God through his creation. In verse 28, And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So this is the third and final time that Paul says that God gave them up. And I said earlier that just like like all things in sin, it goes from bad to worse. This verse starts by saying that man suppressed the truth, and then we become futile in our thinking, and we became fools. And it was at this point that we read that God gave us up to our lust. But here, now, we see that God gives us up to a debased mind. Once again, we see the righteousness of God in his punishment that is equal to the crime. In our foolish and worthless minds, we didn't acknowledge God, and for this reason, God gave us up over to worthless and foolish minds. This is the meaning of debased. If God is the base, we are debased. We are all off base. We are unstable, completely unstable. And if these verses are meant to chronicle the slide of man into sinfulness, and they are, then what comes next must be beyond all comprehension. must be so evil that only the worst of sinners would even think of them. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. These next verses are used to describe those that God handed over to us. And that is, wrath is revealed from heaven on. And begin with the first charge, unrighteousness. The first charge is also the summation of all the other 21 charges against humanity. In the courtroom of heaven, there may be a book for each one of us, or even books, of the sins that we have done against God. But on the first page of that book, at the very top heading, there's one charge unrighteous. We are meant to be righteous. We were made to be righteous, and we are nothing but unrighteous. We aren't tainted with unrighteousness. We aren't polluted with it. We are filled with it. Unrighteousness is in every cell of our body. We bleed it. We excel it. We live it. So much so that when we read this list, we're not even scandalized by it. The reason we're not is because these sins, or is not that these sins aren't grievous, they are. The reason we're not shocked is simply because we are filled with these sins. We don't see deceit and gossip as, gossip as outrageous and shameful simply because they ooze out of our pores like sweat does on a hot August afternoon. And don't console yourself into thinking that God hates sin but loves sinners. No, contrary to what we've been told, God hates sinners. Psalm eleven five says, "The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence." Or even more specifically, Psalm five five: "The boastful shall not stand before Your eyes; You hate all evildoers." Paul knew our tendency to want to separate our actions from ourselves. So right in the smack of this list, he moves from the actions being done to the people actually doing them. Starting with the word or starting with their gossips. And then he moves into slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. In the middle of this list is haters of God. In our minds, we'll argue that being foolish and faithless or disobedient to your parents doesn't necessarily make you a hater of God. Isn't that painting with too big a brush? No. We will contend that those that do really bad sins like murder and rape, they obviously hate God. But being boastful, is that evidence of being a hater of God? Yes. This is part of the reason why Paul spends so much time ensuring that he covers with precision the sinful state of man. We whitewash sin. We disregard sin. We'll minimalize, minimalize it, calling it human nature or an accident or a mistake. We must allow the truth of God's word to sink deep into our souls. The child that does not obey their parents hates God, even if he's never been told the fifth commandment. The law did not invent sin. It just points out the righteousness of God as opposed to sin. And finally, we come to the end of the list and the end of the verses. But Paul was never one to pull punches, so he ends with an uppercut and then a roundhouse kick to the chest. Though they knew God, Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We need to understand that Paul is speaking about all men. Every human knows within ourselves the truth concerning God. We know, and because of this, we are accountable. We can deny God. We can avoid him. We can try never to think about him. But we can never escape him. We live in his universe. We instinctively know right from wrong. And that the due penalty for sin is death. We were created in his image and we know that all that sin deserve to die. Paul finally gets to the worst of the worst in saying that even though uh, we know that people who do these things, who live this way deserve deserve to die, we not only do them, We practice them, meaning that we do so often, we do them so often that we actually get really good at them. And even worse, we not only practice them, but we approve of them. We make them socially acceptable. Well, how do we do that? One way is by changing the way that we talk. It used to be that if a couple cohabitated, they were called living in sin, now they're just called living together. Used to be, the people who lied were called liars. Now, they just are challenged with the truth. Used to be, the children that disobeyed their parents were called degenerate. Now, they're taken to the doctor, they're given a label, and they and their parents use that label as they brandish it as a weapon against all that would ever say anything about how that child acts. It used to be that homosexuals were called just that, or sodomites. Now they're called gay, and they live an alternative lifestyle. It used to be that murdering a child was called murder and was illegal. Now it's called abortion, and it's nothing but a procedure. And it's protected by our government. Our hatred toward God has, been, has revealed itself to the point that even those that may not participate in these sins will either legislate for them or will advocate for them. And the vast majority of people will idly sit by and say nothing. But let me warn you before we start getting all wrought up and just how bad things are today and start longing for the good old days. This letter was written 2,000 years ago. Things then were just as bad as they are now. And a matter of fact, things have been a lot worse before. We know that, and we know that they're not that bad now because God has not appointed a prophet to build an ark and start gathering up the animals. And let's remember that this indictment is not even against the people 2,000 years ago. This indictment is against Adam and Eve. We are no more sinful today than man has been since the fall in the garden. The reason that we get all confused about this is that we moralize God and we want to justify ourselves. We want to sugarcoat our little sinful nature, want to dress it up as we demonize the really awful things that those sinners do. Or we retreat completely the other way and hide behind judge not lest ye be judged and say that although I don't agree with what things are doing in their lifestyle, who am I to say anything about it? We do this because we don't recognize the righteousness of God. We have no concept of what that is, what it means, and for this reason we can't see the vast gulf that separates him from us. We can't see ourselves as treasonous rebels. We refuse to acknowledge the cancer that that is within us, claiming that it's merely a cold or maybe a flesh wound, instead of the fatal, incurable, and eternal disease that it is. This is what we don't understand about sin. This is the human condition. We either argue that there's no such thing as God, no such thing as sin, or we think that sin really can't be that bad, and God is just wanting us to ruin our fun. Let's go back to the four reasons or the four reasons that I gave earlier as why Paul um, was hammering us and is hammering us so hard on this. Number one, we must understand the seriousness of sin. C. H. Spurgeon once said, When we deal seriously with sin, it is then that God will deal gently with us. Sin is not merely a moral dilemma or a deficiency in our character. It is nothing less than us elevating ourselves to the place of God. John Piper had this to say about it. Why is it that people can become emotionally and morally indignant over poverty, exploitation, prejudice and abortion and the, infractions of, and the infractions of religious liberty and the manifold injustices of man against man and yet little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded disbelieved disobeyed dishonored and thus belittled by millions and millions of people in the world the answer is sin and that is the ultimate outrage of the universe. Number two, bad diagnosis leads to false remedies. Part of the reason that Christianity light is embraced so widely is because of how people are taught concerning sin. It used to be that Christianity was the lifeboat for the dying, but now it's the cruise ship for those that want a better life. Sin Is a subject that is um, shunned in most churches. It's rarely ever taught, or if it is, it's just skimmed right past. This has led to the acceptance of the false gospel and tells you that all you need to overcome your little depression, to get out of your debt, to achieve the goals that you want, is add a little Jesus to your life, like adding salt to your food to enhance that. If a doctor were to misdiagnose cancer as a cold and gave the patient an aspirin instead of chemotherapy, there would be moral outrage. There is far worse malpractice happening right now at this very hour all around us. So-called preachers are telling dying people that they are healthy, telling damned people that they're loved, and telling dead people that they're alive. We need an accurate diagnosis of, what, of who and what we are so we know exactly what we need. Number three, understanding our sin and God's wrath is healthy. We need to understand that we are sin, that it is sin within us that propels and empowers the sin that we think and do. Our sins do not make us sinners. We sin Because we are sinners. God is the standard. His righteousness is the eternal litmus test. We are ungodly, we are unrighteous, we were not created this way, but this is the reality of who we are. We need to understand that the wrath of God is nothing other than the correct and justifiable action by God taken against our sin. It is punitive, it is equitable, and it is eternal, and it is the reflection of his righteousness, his justice, and his love. When we are faced with the truth of our sin and the righteousness of God in his wrath, we can then begin to comprehend ourselves and others. It's then that we can begin to understand that man's greatest, what man's greatest need is and exactly what Christ did for us. It's then that we can begin to help people to understand them and ourselves better and begin to have a deeper relationship with God, knowing that all his actions, all his actions are just. And if there's any good in us, it is all of him. Fourth thing I said, knowing our sin will help us cherish the gospel. Finally, when we understand the nature of sin, when we grasp the seriousness of it, see it for just how and horrible it is, we can then begin to see the true beauty of the sacrifice of God in saving any from our sin. The righteousness of God is like a diamond that the broker takes from the safe. He'll pick it up and people will just look at it and go, that doesn't doesn't look like much. But when it's put against on that black cloth, all of a sudden it just radiates and comes alive. That is exactly the truth of what happens when you see God's righteousness against our sin. It is then that you could understand that God is amazing that he would come and love any of us because none of us are deserving of anything but his wrath. The person who is taught superficially concerning sin loves God superficially. Of course Jesus came and died for me. I'm me. The person who is taught the truth about God and their sin runs to their Savior, who is then the hero of their life. Think about it this way. If you were trapped in your house behind your bedroom door and someone came and turned the knob and opened it for you, you wouldn't think very much of them. You wouldn't actually call them your hero and you wouldn't be enthralled with them. But that person who is on the top of a skyscraper that's on fire that is breathing his last breath of smoke-filled air whose clothes are catching on fire because of the fire that's all around him when he looks up and he sees that fireman charging in to save him he loves that man that man is his hero because he knows that he was saved from certain death that's what we need to see about ourselves. And that's how we need to see God. Paul knew that he was a sinner, and not just a sinner, but he called himself the chiefest of sinners because he knew who and what he was. He knew exactly that he deserved in life and death. He deserved hell for all eternity, and he deserved nothing good here. Because he knew these truths, he knew the value, majesty, and worth of his Savior. Because of these things, he could boldly proclaim to all that he was not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being truthful about who we are. Lord, your word conveys us the truth of who you are and your righteousness and your justice and your mercy. And Father, because of our sin, we can't comprehend that. We can't comprehend what it means that you are righteous. But you have been truthful to us as well in telling us that we are unrighteous and that we are ungodly. We deserve nothing good from you. It is your just mercy to pour out your wrath on us. Those that have sinned against you. Father, thank you for your salvation that you have given us, that you poured out your wrath on your Son for our sins. And because of that, because of His righteousness, Lord, now we are righteous. Is a truth that is hard to comprehend. Father, I pray that You would drill deep into our hearts and our souls the truth of our sin against You, that we would come to love and cherish You as our hero and our Savior. Lord, it is only you that can do this in our lives. and We plead that you will do it more. In Jesus' name, amen.